So hello everyone, and thank you for joining Every Moment is a Choice. My name is Erica Behel, and this is a podcast for people who are looking to understand their own unique courage. I talk with people who have inspired me with the choices they've made, in both in their career and in their personal lives. Today, I am thrilled to have Dr. Lori Charles on the podcast. Hi, Lori. Hi, Erica. So great to see you. So great to see you too. So for the listeners, Lori is one of the world's leading experts on family therapy and mental health in conflict zones and violence-affected states. She has spent her career working in the field in over a dozen countries to scale up local family therapy programs for those affected by war and violence. A few of the examples, this is not a comprehensive list of some of the projects she's done, but she has worked in Burundi and the Democratic Republic of Congo, helping survivors of gender and sexual violence. She has supported World Health Organization efforts in Guinea during the Ebola outbreak of 2015. She has trained and supervised local psychotherapy practitioners and programs in places as diverse as Syria, Kosovo, Lebanon, Central African Republic, Cameroon, Libya, Sri Lanka, and Egypt. She's trained family therapy practitioners from over a dozen Asian countries on behalf of the United Nations. Lori is also the recipient of not one, but two Fulbright Fellowship grants. During one of those, she created a grassroots toolkit for family therapy practitioners in transitional justice and reconciliation initiatives. She has numerous publications and books that she has published already on international family therapy in reconstruction and post-conflict areas. And I am so delighted to say that I met Lori way back when we were in Peace Corps together in Togo, West Africa, over 20 years ago. It feels like it's <laughs> So we will get into Lori's career, her various experiences, and some great stories. But before we get to all of that, I would like to dive right in because today's post-COVID world, you know, all of our listeners are out there and we are talking and thinking about mental health so much more now than we used to be. Um, especially pre-COVID, right? So we talk about mental health. It's a huge issue in the workplace, for leaders, in schools, even for our kids. And so, Lori, I wanted to just dive right in and get your take on the situation with all of your expertise. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Thank you. That's, thank you so much. What an introduction. That's so great to, uh, to be here, Erica, and great to talk to you. You know, it's interesting for me to talk about covid 19 because I uh, worked in the Ebola virus disease outbreak. So I had the experience of, you know, working with contact tracers. I had the experience of IPC, infection prevention and control. You know, I was in West Africa, but I live in the United States. So at that time, people may remember in the U.S., there were one or two cases and they made the headlines every day. You know, when I would returned from my mission in uh, Guinea to the U.S., I had somebody from uh, the CDC waiting for me at the airport because I had come from an Ebola-affected uh, country. Wow. Uh, yeah. And in the city I lived in, where I was based, this was in San Antonio, the health department had identified me as a risk. So I had to report for three weeks my temperature twice a day. So I was not even exposed to Ebola when I was working in, in Guinea. 
Yeah. Ebola virus disease is the kind of disease that it's very obvious when you're sick mm-hmm. uh, or when, when someone is infected. And you can, when I arrived there a year into the outbreak, the social and cultural mores were such that people understood how to protect themselves and protect other people. So to watch COVID-19 unfold in such a dramatic way was really powerful for me. I mean, and in one way, I felt very prepared. And my family was also very prepared because they had watched you know, what I, what I had done. And after my work in, in Guinea, I made sure my family members all had the, uh, the radar thermometers mm-hmm. and those came, those, and ma- those came in very handy right later on. But, you know, and the work that I did in Guinea was focused on reducing the stigma of Ebola for affected family members and also for the staff mm-hmm. um, that were affected. So it's very analogous to COVID. So how COVID the diagnosis and the illness and the death from COVID affect people around them. So this was our focus also in the in Guinea and particularly around like, how do we support the trust that needs to be there between a community and uh, public health providers so that they, so that the transmission is reduced and we're addressing the whole person, you know, not just mm-hmm. the, the infection, right? Which needs to, or the virus rather, needs to be addressed, but the the repercussions of that on people's um, health. And that is also analogous to COVID. So for me to watch what happened in COVID, I mean, it was, it was really clear what needed to be done because we have examples of it across the globe, across other pandemics and epidemics, but a hard time managing the social component of how a community, you know, trusts its health, health providers or trusts governance to tell them what's happening. And also the shock of having to think about the way that you wash your hands and where you, what you breathe. You know, it's kind of shock and awe for certain countries, but in other parts of the globe, not so much a shock. For instance, in Guinea, the contact tracers were community health workers who had been working in the polio, uh, polio-like outbreaks. So it was like a ready-made cadre of, uh, of people, whereas it was, you know, not like that, obviously, in the United States. So in Guinea, we would say that there's no health without mental health, you know, in French, right? And I think that idea has now become more, much more accepted across the globe because of COVID, like that we yeah. need to address mental health and all its permutations and all the ways that people need to be supported for their well-being. Absolutely. And it seems because it was such a global pandemic, and even in the Western world, right? Ebola affected places that were, for the average American, a very far away place. You know, Ebola was kind of something that was very remote and didn't really touch uh, the U.S. But yeah, the global nature of COVID has really brought it to the fore. So in terms of global mental health today, after, you know, you have so much expertise on especially families and you talked about individuals and then their overall families in in terms of mental health. I wanted to ask you a question. How do you define family? Oh, I love that question. Um, I love that question because, you know, for a few reasons, like one is that everywhere that I've worked and every, you know, I've worked as a, as a family therapist with, you know, many thousands of hours with families in, in the U S and I've trained folks who work with families and I mean, it's without, it's universal that family's important. Like there are always values about like the need to have strong families and 
families should be at the top of our list when we think about uh, what makes a strong community, right? But what's different is what how people identify family and also the things that people think families should do and not do or how families should look and not look. So yeah. that's where things get, you know, a little bit less uh, universal. But my stock phrase is uh, a family, you know, it, it, it can be kin and non-blood kin. So blood kin and non-blood kin. And Literally, when I'm, in, you know, I'm a systemic family therapist. So if I'm working with one person, or we're talking about, you know, someone who has a, a diagnosis of COVID or or um, EVD, who are the affected people in that person's network? Mm-hmm. And you know, it may be direct family members in lots of parts of Africa. Non-blood kin is very important. I mean, there's not those kind of distinctions about like a sister is a direct sister from. My, the same mother and father. <laughs> so this, I think a lot of the world is, uh, is like that. It's a very broad talking about what family is. So my stock official answer in a training will be like, you know, blood kin and non-blood kin. And then how does the person I'm working with define it? That's almost more important than what I think. I mean, I think family is whoever, you know, whoever we say it is. And in terms of the, the, um, the person I'm talking to. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And I, I remember now from when we were in Togo together, someone would introduce their, some, you know, a Togolese person would introduce their sister and they, and they would mention, oh, men pair, men mare. And that means same mother, same father. <laughs> they had to clarify that this was their sister by the actual same biological parents, because there was, there was an extended definition of sister because of, you know, hu- husbands who had several wives or, or exactly. their kind of uh, family groupings where they considered them sisters, but they weren't necessarily the, the Western definition or the American yes. definition of sisters. So I, I, I remember that. <laughs> I forgot the phrase, but I remember being confused for my, for me, you know, it, who, you know, I'm, I, you know, my family is, uh, you know, historically from Latin America, right? So we have, I have a very large extended family, but still having been raised and socialized in the United States to get to, you know, Togo and struggle with, well, who's related to whom by whom? And that's not really the same question everywhere. It doesn't have the same resonance everywhere. And, yeah. you know, even in the U.S. now, we have the phrase where it says a brother from another mother. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, it's the idea of um, family is... Uh, I don't want to say it's changing, but it's unique. It's unique across places and it should be. Why not? And, and do you think, because when I think, when I originally hear the term family therapy, I think of the therapy that like divorced parents will attend with their children to get them through a divorce, or if there is abuse in a household and there's some type of kind of intervention with family therapy, but maybe that's too narrow a definition. I mean, when you talk about family therapy, what does that include? Oh, that's such a good question. And I'm so glad you asked it. Well, so one important thing to say is that systemic family therapy is how I identify what I do. So mm-hmm. in that in that uh, umbrella, a family is seen as a system, but there are right uh, multiple kinds of systems and there's all kinds of systemic ther- theory and uh, work in many fields. So that is the influence on the kind of 
uh, on family therapy in in the way that I was trained and many people are trained. So that means any anything that a person is experiencing that seems to be a threat or a challenge to their psychosocial well-being is up for grabs in terms of like, what can we do uh, in terms of a support or intervention? But you're right. I mean, I, I think traditionally there's this idea that that's the only time we talk to a family is when there's a divorce or when there's abuse or, you know, and it's not that we, that's not important to do. It's important to do. But quite frankly, the research shows that individuals do better in therapy when people in their family are involved in one way or another, because we don't experience uh, challenges or, or like mental health uh, problems or experiences in a vacuum. Someone else is always involved. Yeah. Someone else is always involved. So a systemic approach is looking at, well, how do we incorporate whether it doesn't have to be physically bring that person in the place, but like incorporate them in the conversation, in the dialogue, so that the individual yeah. I'm working with has a reduced anxiety or reduced stress, whatever it might be. So it's definitely broader, like you said, and it, it's not, it really can't be, I mean, divorce is not a problem everywhere in the same way, just like, you know, mem, mem, mem pair, you know, so the way families are constructed is different. And I, I like to think, you know, that in, in the kind of work I do, that we're adaptable to whatever people bring in. So clients who have issues with work colleagues, that's a big challenge. Or, you know, with the pandemic, uh, talking, you know, clients who have challenges talking to their health providers, particularly people with like diabetes, chronic uh, illness. And, you know, I work in a community that has a large Cambodian uh, population. So lots of survivors of the genocide in Cambodia. And, you know, that this, this is a very interesting type of work also. I mean, we're promoting the health of an individual means working with the family around access to care with their health providers and building trust and also practical things that can reduce like their A1C, but also, you know, with the human component. And that that's so important. Like, so it's very holistic and uh, it's a long answer to your question, but... I'm glad you asked it because that is, I think that's a, not a myth, but it's like a, a not, it's an incomplete understanding. Yeah. And I, I love your answer and your explanation around systemic family therapy and how we don't experience things, especially extreme traumatic things in isolation. It's always as part of a, whatever our grouping is, you know, whether it's our blood relatives, whether it's our chosen family who we, who we tend to rely on for support. And I think from all your experience working with people in kind of extreme situations, I mean, you've, you've been involved in some pretty important conflicts, you know, post-conflict areas and everything where, where there's probably a lot of trauma or maybe I'm using the wrong term, but there seems to have been a lot of extreme pressures on people and I want to, I want to actually get your take on trauma. There's a lot of talk and another buzzword that I hear a lot is trauma. And so I want to kind of get your take on that. Was the whole COVID experience like a traumatic event for us as a people mm -hmm. or? Wow. That's also a good question. I was talking with a colleague the other day and you know, that that's, that, you know, she talked with me about how she and her coworkers in a training program, a graduate training program are 
are also discussing like, you know, is, is everybody traumatized and what does that mean when there's trauma and, uh, you know, everybody has trauma? Does that, it, what is trauma then? And I do have the interesting experience though of working with people in places where, I mean, one thing that stands out is violence that people have witnessed directly, especially, yes. or violence that people have been forced to become a part of with their loved ones. So this is a this is one distinction that I mean of course violence occurs everywhere in different kinds of ways but one of the early distinctions I used to make was like was it something that the per- person witnessed or or experienced directly? I mean and that's that's interesting because um for two reasons for me. So I rely a lot on also Judith Herman's work. She wrote a great book about trauma. She's like the, you know one of the original scholars and she she does a lovely job in her book about talking about how a traumatic incident can instill this feeling of helplessness that can linger for people mm-hmm. and that the antidote to that is is in a way is activism and so she names like the Vietnam veterans movement and women's movement the second thing that that I attached to that is like what was the person's it's not like in spatial time their closeness to the traumatic incident because that also became fluid in COVID. It's like, well, were we all on the front line? You know, one of my colleagues and I asked, we were all, I mean, and in a way, yes. I mean, what is the number of deaths from COVID? And people still die from COVID every day. Mm-hmm. And death is traumatic. <laughs> death is traumatic. So to answer your question, I do think there is an element of like a kind of post-traumatic stress that has, blanketed the globe and that I think we do I mean in ways that we don't quite understand yet and we can't fully see yet except that uh you know I think the data will show in a few years how you know health people's health outcomes are like today and I know that lots of clients I work with now the stressors they have around um um housing and inflation and um food insecurity and like not necessarily violence, but uh, conflict in their homes have direct and indirect effects to COVID. I mean, and it's striking to me. Of course, it's going to be like that. Ebola continued, you know, the, there is a vaccine now for Ebola. The, the outbreak was contained. Recent, more recent outbreaks have been contained. But how can we don't assume that there's no effects after that? There are. And how can COVID not be? I mean, COVID, of course, of course. So I think um, there's a lot of positive outcomes that can come from dealing with extreme adversity. And I would say COVID has brought extreme adversity to many households. And so in those families and in those households, we have a lot to discover about how, how families adapted to adversity in ways that they didn't know they could. And that, of course, that happens, you know, and this is something I've seen you know, this week is like a 10 year anniversary of my first time working with Syrians mm-hmm. since the, the war started in Syria. It's been 10 years. Yeah. And, and to watch them still do such amazing work. I mean, how it's overcoming, you know, yes, there's incredible, incredible traumatic uh, incidents, but there's also, um, I don't want to say resilience because it's another catchword, but there's also something else that happens. There's something else that can happen when people overcome that or continue to move forward in spite of that. 
Yeah. And yeah, so that, you know, that's important to say. So are we all traumatized? Yes. Are we all uh, here to, to find out how we can overcome trauma? Yeah. So I, I'm fascinated by the the kind of insight that you're bringing that there's, there's kind of a ripple effect. Like you're saying there's the immediate kind of um, repercussions of events or violence or war or COVID, but then even years down the line, there may be after effects, kind of ripple effects as it moves through people's um, lives, how how they deal with it and everything. I think that's so key because what we're dealing with in 2023, you know, we might still be dealing with some type of variation of post-COVID in 2025, 2027, several years down the road. That's so interesting. But uh, you you sound hopeful in that there is, like you talk about Syria in 10 years on, call it resilience, call it some type of um, ability to move through these things um, that I think is so, so mm-hmm. amazing. And if you've learned one thing from, you know, one positive, hopeful thing from all of your experiences, is it around that, that resilience? Is it something else? What, what would you say you've, you've taken away? Well, that's a big one. I mean, that's a big one. I mean, it's shocking to me to have to think that it has been 10 years mm-hmm. and, you know, that the kind of work I do, I mean, it often involves a, a face-to-face component with people in their home country or in a nearby country where they're from. And then the rest of the, the post of that experience, you know, is, is, is virtual through meetings uh, online or, or texting through encrypted, you know, just it's, it's continued contact. And we're at 10 years now and uh, serious, you know, not the only place that has happened. I worked for many years in Kosovo. I'm still close colleagues with these people that I met there many in 1999, I mean, a long time ago, 2009, pardon me. And there is something very, it's not just that they, they move through it because, and they do, but like they move through it with like, um, like power and, and like creativity and like, they make the kind of family therapy I do seem outdated. (laughs) I mean, they like create new stuff and that is boy, that. So like one thing that sticks lately is like the future for me, the future of our field is going to look, I mean, because I've I've got this view from, you know, what I've seen across low and middle income countries and countries that are, you know, not part of, uh, you know, the, the global North, right. They, they create, you know, create something different with the same ideas. And that's really inspiring. I mean, it keeps me curious. And in a way, it's like, you know, I say like every, every new family I work with or every client I work with, it's like the first client, even though I have all these years and and years of experience, it's always new. So I, something like that has happened with, um, with the work that former trainees of mine in conflict states have created in their context, which I do not live in, where I do not speak the language. So of course it's going to be different, but like to, to hear what they're doing and see, see some of their things uh, online. It's like, wow. It's like, yeah, I feel like I know a little bit more, but even if I didn't know anything, it would blow my mind what they're doing. So. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so hopeful to me. Um, Something that, that reminds me of 
that that concept of people working in the community, taking the knowledge, applying it to their situation in a way that is relevant, local, culturally appropriate and everything sounds exactly what almost development work should be. Um, And it it takes me back to Peace Corps because you and I were both Peace Corps volunteers and I don't want to upset any Peace Corps people, but looking back on it, it looks more like a program to develop young Americans with a wider worldview, um, to develop leadership skills, uh, rather than to actually impact communities, right? And, and you come in as a, most Peace Corps volunteers are quite young. You know, we were in our 20s and everything, going out there, having fun and, and doing, you know, quote unquote development work or projects and everything. And, and I think what you're saying is kind of like the more impactful version where it's not, it's not Lori Charles, Dr. Lori Charles, who has created all this impact in Kosovo. It's the people that you've trained who are doing it and, and they're still doing it right now. So many years later, that's still impacting. And that seems like appropriate type of development work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The longevity. And I mean, you, we, we have this saying in, you know, that in therapy or in, in family therapy, I mean, you, you kind of, your goal is to kind of get fired. Your goal is to not be necessary anymore. Yeah. I, I don't really, you know, it's not like you want the family to fire you, but you want, you don't want to be needed. I mean, the goal is that that's how I was trained. And I believe that. And I think it's very similar in international work. I don't want to be needed. And I don't, you know, I, what, what's interesting too, is the lots of groups I work with because they're, they're, um, they might be new, you know, at some point they're new to the content of what it means to work with families. It's hard for them to see a period where they're, they don't, you know, where they're doing it on their own, but it always comes. It always comes. I mean, I, I love, uh, in Kosovo, like the last visit, my last Fulbright was the last time I was there. And, uh, you know, I'm like, I'm going to like the clinics that people have opened up. They've opened up family therapy clinics, you know, and the one of them, she, they did a conference, a conference on trauma in war. And it was the first time they heard that they'd had a conference, uh, in Pristina on that. And I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of people came. So this is like, wow, yeah, it's exactly how it should be. It should just roll right forward. And then I need to, I mean, it's easy to take a step back. I mean, literally, I'm not in the place. So like, I'm not there. Yeah. But uh, I I think that is harder, this idea of development. Like, we don't know what to do necessarily after. Like, what? how do we follow something? In this case, for me, I mean, the relationships that develop that's what sustained it. The relationships I have with my colleagues uh, in Sri Lanka and Kosovo and Syria, our lives have changed over. I mean, their lives change, but mine does too. You know, their country situation changes and mine does too. But um, it's powerful to me how some things uh, remain the same. So like the need to support families in their, in their the settings where they live in spite of the dynamic changes happening that stays the same. So that's fascinating for me to watch like, oh, how did they support people? They had, they had the war, they had COVID and then they had the earthquake. Yeah. You know? So like, yeah. And you know, that, that, that brings me like 
you know, it makes me stay on my toes, which is good. It's good. Cause I've been, you know, I've been doing this work a long time. So anything I can do that keeps me fresh and keeps me on my toes is like a good thing. Yeah, definitely. Well, how, I mean, how empowering is that message? You know, that you see the fruits of what you've done live on and, and just blossom um, in the local communities. That's so awesome. I, I love that. And you mentioned, I want to, I want to hear a little bit more about your own story and how, how you got into this line of work, because when I met you, it was in Peace Corps, but at that time you had already done your doctorate and you had fresh, freshly finished your dissertation. I think when you left for Peace Corps in family therapy. So what led you to family therapy in the first place? Well, I, I realized pretty quickly after I got my degree, I got like, you know, a liberal arts degree in psychology that like, you know, I couldn't do much with it. Like I needed more, uh, I needed something else and back to relationships, right. I was introduced to the faculty in the program I went to, uh, our lady Lake university in San Antonio. And, you know, they hooked me, (laughs) they hooked me in the way they talked about families. And then, you know, I had my first class. I still remember the role play that my professor did at the time mm-hmm. and the power of like how that affected me. And, you know, I was hooked. I worked throughout my graduate degree in my first one. So I spent like six years doing that master's degree. So I was like really immersed and I still didn't feel finished. So I went on and got my doctorate, but I don't know. I think something about the curiosity of, um, of it making of like change happening in the family was really um, powerful and still is. And I don't know that I thought more broadly than that. And I certainly didn't know that I, I would end up doing what I was, what I'm doing now. Although my advisor at the time, my, my advisor in undergrad talked with me and I remember her telling me, oh, you're going to be in the foreign service someday. And of course I'm not in the foreign service, but she had a, she, she was onto something, you know, like this interest in the world and um, being curious about the world and wanting to be engaged in the world, you know, that has stayed steady. And Peace Corps was part of that. I had actually, uh, I had postponed going into the Peace Corps 10 years or something earlier, five to 10 years earlier because of the finishing my degree. So I was also on a, I'm like, I need to do it now or I'm never going to do it. Yeah. Because I was, I was expected to join the academy and become a professor. Yeah. And, um, you know, my advisors were a little bit, one of them was kind of horrified. Well, how can you join the Peace Corps? <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, he's, Can- he's Canadian. So I always I'm like, well, you don't know, you don't know, that's what this is about. But that was part of it is like, I need a break from, I need a break. And uh, I had studied French in school, but I couldn't speak it uh, fluently. So that was, I'm like, let me do a francophone place where I, and I wanted to be someplace where I didn't know anything, where I had to like, I don't know, really like grow in all kinds of different ways. And that happened. It definitely happened. Yeah. And, you know, actually, when I talk about Peace Corps, I always tell people, it's funny that you mentioned this earlier that I always tell people, well, I was like 10 years older than all my, uh, my cohort in Peace Corps. And I, I, that somehow, like, I loved it. I loved, I mean, I loved, um, the contrast of people's experiences and I really loved the, the program that, that we were a part of, you know, that was still has stuck with me, you know, working with young women and that, you know, remember Hillary Clinton's used to talk about her speech in Beijing, how that informed what we did. And it's still so relevant. Yeah. 
you know, I think that I, this is just like uh, the work I'm doing today is a long line of that. One thing I'd add that is interesting in hindsight now, you know, I work a lot in conflict affected spaces uh, where there's ongoing combat or a history of conflict, separatist conflict or um, low intensity conflict, all kinds of ways, right, that, that there can be like uh, violence between state right actors and non-state actors. My dissertation was on a crisis negotiation. Mm-hmm. I studied, it actually happened to be a school shooting before school shootings were so common. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a large scale critical incident. And, and I studied how it was resolved peacefully. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to think now about what I do, because I, I also have worked as a crisis clinician, like as a, in crisis settings. So, I mean, I, I think sometimes like I'm doing the same thing, but it's like large, just a larger scale, you know, yeah. or training people who work in crisis settings. We don't call them crisis settings, but but the idea of like there's extreme adversity happening in real time. So how do we support people? So that's, you know, I, I didn't catch that until about five years and I'm like, oh, you know, because my dissertation, it was kind of unusual to do something like that as a family therapist. But, you know, I was interested in how the crisis was resolved. I mean, to me, that's very, so, so simple. And I yeah. learned a lot. Learned a lot. Yeah. And it seems particularly relevant now in hindsight and the, the type of situations and, and kind of environments that you've practiced your family therapy and family therapy training for host country nationals in those type of areas. So, so yeah, it, it's funny you bring that up because I remember, so for our listeners, the, the program that Lori and I were in, in Peace Corps in Togo was called Girls Education and Empowerment. And it was a relatively new program. I think we were the first batch and we were the first. Yeah, back in 1999 um, in Togo and and it was it was kind of a broad program. So we had lots of different activities within that, but it was looking at the inequity, um, the way that girls, especially school age going girls in these countries, um, were often dropping out of school, um, ways to intervene, ways to kind of um, build up their confidence to to work with the community to, I mean, essentially try to keep the girls in school. Uh, but also to work with women, um, women's empowerment as well. So it was a very interesting program. And I think that now I'm not sure it still exists or whether it's kind of been incorporated in uh, lots of the other programs um, in terms of gender equity. Um, So interesting. So you did Peace Corps, you finished your, your doctorate in family therapy, you went to Peace Corps did Peace Corps kind of evolve your thinking on, okay, now I want to go lots of places and do this, and now I want to study more? Because then you went on to get another degree um, yeah. later, you know, in your career. Like, how, how did it evolve post-Peace Corps? Did you, did you think you're going to stay? Uh, uh, well, that's it. <laughs> there, that is a, there is a good story there, too. I mean, the short answer is no. I didn't think, I didn't think beyond, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I had a realization too. I'm like, Oh, I I came back, you know, I need to, I just got my PhD and, you know, I need to get, I need to get a teaching job. And, you know, I spent a lot of years becoming, and I, you know, I think too, in hindsight, that's really important that I did that, like becoming sort of credentialed and established as a scholar and a teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I focused on that 
for the next decade. But <laughs> the second year, the first year rather, a post Peace Corps. So we finished like 2001. Yeah. I, in 2002, I was working as a faculty in a state in the in the U in the South, and I was so frustrated being land bound in the United States. I was really frustrated, and I was desperate actually. And I wrote. I've told the story just a few times, but I wrote a you know an email, a cold call version of an email to a a senior scholar in our field, whose article I had read about his work teaching family therapy in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And that article really had an effect on me. And I was so desperate. I got his email. I wrote him and I'm like, can I go to Indonesia? I just flat out asked him. Now he wasn't even from Indonesia. <laughs> but, I'm desperate I was. Um, but I asked him for help. And uh, I ended up, you know, he, I ended up going to the Philippines the first time that summer. So there was something that happened post Peace Corps that like I couldn't like shut off, like you know uh, the impulse to like be placed in an area where I was new or didn't know didn't know everything and had to learn new things. And what had changed was I had the teaching experience. So I went to Manila and I taught. I taught for like three months at uh, Del Sal in Manila. And Fred, Fred Piercy, the person I had written, he's a good friend now. We wrote an article about that afterward. He, I mean, he didn't know me, but he still helped me. He wrote people and he said in the email, I don't know her, <laughs> but <laughs> which I thought was so honest. I really respect that he did that because now, of course, I'm in the position where people ask me that stuff. Yep. So, uh, you know, and I went to Manila again, I served on a board there but that you're I think you're you know you're right and I haven't thought of it about that way before I mean I stayed on this traditional path that I needed to do in my field that had been laid out for me right but then I was like "Mm, I have to um I have to keep this other thread going so I went to Manila I went to a few years after that I went to my first francophone country to work Mm -hmm. as a consultant and then I learned that and someone actually told me you know when we see that you've been in Peace Corps, we can see that you can parachute parachute into a place and especially a low resource setting where mm-hmm. you know, I mean, and you, and you learned French, you know, that, that was like a big, and I didn't expect that it was a big draw. So yeah. I found myself like, wow, really like, you know, lucky that I had that, ex- that experience in Peace Corps. I didn't expect that. Yeah. And, and how important is it to, reach out to people, you know, because you never know. I I've reached out to people thinking they're never going to write me back. You know, they're too famous. They're too important in their field. They're never going to write me back. Sometimes they write you back. Sometimes they help you out. Right. Yes. No, no, I, I agree. And he's a, he's like a, he was a role model for a long time in that way for me where, um, you know, I, I just being available being available and accessible, especially I think sometimes the kind of work that I do or this kind of work, it can seem very inaccessible. Like who knows what's going on in Syria? Like, how would you learn that? And, you know, there's, or, or Kosovo. I mean, and I, that is also, I feel like I have not exactly, I mean, kind of a responsibility. Like I need to speak to that. Like, I don't want it to just be a one-off. I want to I want, I want people to know. So I'll, anyone who writes me an email, especially if it's someone I know that, um, has referred them to me, I'll, 
I'll uh, respond, you know, and I, that's easy to do to talk to people. It's easy to do. So Yeah. And so important. So you, you said you had, you still had that kind of itch to scratch with um, international settings and everything. What prompted you to go on and you got another degree in international relations um, a few years after that? Yes. What, what prompted that? Oh yeah. I forgot about that last one. Like I have, uh, yeah. <laughs> and that by the way, has been 10 years, uh, just like accidentally, but, um, I was really frustrated in a professional like situation in a region of Africa where I, you know, I had, I applied to the program. I had applied to the program at Fletcher where, um, for mid-career professionals and, but I put it on, I deferred it. You know, mm-hmm. I was working as an academic in the field of family therapy and I just thought, oh, this might, might be interesting. I went to visit it and, you know, I, so I applied, was accepted, and but I didn't go right away. And uh, that changed after I had an experience on a consultancy um, job where multiple countries were involved and there was exploitation happening on the ground with the group I was working with. There wasn't any type of communication or coordination mm. uh, between the multiple countries that were involved. Uh, the funding stream seemed to be influencing the corruption that was happening and unethical mm. things that were happening. And that that experience, I remember having lunch with my husband, and he was with me, uh, and we. <laughs> I'm like, it's time, it's time to go to Fletcher, because uh, I, I knew what was happening, but I didn't know what to do. And that was the, I'm like, I don't know what to do. And it wasn't enough for me. Uh, I mean, the family therapy background wasn't enough to manage this kind of complexity. And that, and I started Fletcher like three months later. Yeah. Um, and that made, I mean, it made a huge difference for me in my, uh, you know, the scope of knowledge, certainly, but understanding how the international system works and, and uh, how it doesn't work, mm. you know, and, uh, you know, what I was doing seemed so interesting and wonderful, but I remember being very curious why I could do something, you know, in one country and it was only for two weeks and yet another country, I could be there for three months. You know, how did that get decided and why did that matter that it was different? And yeah. why, wouldn't it, why couldn't it be the opposite? You know, so, and I didn't know how to answer those questions. Now I can answer those questions. So that was important to me, like to understand it. And I don't, I mean, I don't, I didn't necessarily get, I mean, the way I approached the work changed after that. It's not like I necessarily got more work, but the way I approached it changed. And how, I also developed, yeah. How, how did it change? How did, how did it how did it well, I, I got more, uh, I got a lot more selective about mm-hmm. what, how I chose, um, what I did. And I got a lot more focused on, like, I, I knew, I knew to pay attention, especially for, you know, pro- projects where there's, you know, international funders and there always are international funders, right. And these multilateral projects with multiple organizations involved in countries. And that's important. And everyone has a role to play, but for me, having a good understanding of who was in the community on the ground, like who was actually doing it? Who was it? Yeah. Now, 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 now I, the work I do, and also it's like post COVID, I don't have the luxury to be on the ground to meet those people. So, so, but I want to understand like what that looks like, 
Mm-hmm. And I, in my work as a family therapist, because the other thing I've noticed is that everybody wants to be able to say they support families, but not everybody knows how to do it. Yeah. Or they do it in ways that are not helpful or not evidence-based, right? So this is a real risk in our work because people really want to support families and, yeah. and organizations really want to say they're doing it. And it's an important, it's an important declaration to make. Mm-hmm. So, but I, so I want to see what's behind that. Like, is there support and what is the support? Is it beyond the financial support? Like, are they committed to the sustainability, right? I learned the definition of sustainability at Fletcher. And like, I always quote that when I write about a project being sustainable, like they need to be able to do the work without me. Am I doing it in such a way that they can do it without me? And so I, I, I just, I think I approached it in a more, um, you know, in a less romantic way, quite frankly, less romanticized. I, I was about to say that because I think for people who are not directly involved in things like development work, it can seem to be kind of, um, almost altruistic. Like we're, we're donating, we're, we're helping, we're doing all kinds of great things for people who need us, you know, and, and Peace Corps is just one kind of agency that does that, but there's so many multilateral agencies who are involved all around the world. And you, you quickly see, you know, there's agendas behind things. Sometimes there's motivations behind decisions or funding decisions and all that kind of stuff. And so it is kind of, you know, it it is kind of a bit of a slap in the face almost or a a bit of a shock for some people to realize that there's corruption, there's politics going on, Even (laughs) (laughs) even in, even in these organizations. Right. So you definitely learn to be more selective and understand, uh, the context of how you're working is what I'm hearing. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I, I, I went through a phase, especially with certain countries where I would return and, you know, the people who called me brave versus the people that didn't like, I thought I, that doesn't fit, fit, felt, fit well for me at all. Uh, I'm not brave. I mean, I, these are, this is work. I get paid their jobs. Mm-hmm. They're just like any job in the, that, you know, anyone else might do. Mm-hmm. Like you said, with, that where there can be a risk that you have to manage. There's corruption that you have to mitigate. Mm-hmm. There's, um, there's people who have strengths and people who are, have less strengths in the area that, you know, it's just like any other place, but something about the, the passport or the border or the language where it quickly becomes exoticized. Uh, mm. or and my, I talk about this a lot with some of my colleagues because it's, um, it's frustrating. It's frustrating, but you know, I don't let it get to me. Like, okay, that's, that's one audience. Like I, you know, I live outside, I live in Massachusetts. I'm on the East coast. And like, I often think like, here's my audience here. And then my audience, the rest of the world, Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, look at, you know, the Janice face, right. And international. Uh, yeah. So can I look both ways? That's okay. And, and, uh, gosh, the Fletcher degree. Yeah. It was really helpful. The coursework was so helpful. The sensibility I developed was helpful. And again, like Peace Corps, boy, the friendships uh, I've made because their work, the, the cohort was already doing international work. They were mid-career professionals in intelligence and diplomacy and finance. Um, they had an in-depth understanding that I have drawn on again and again since then. 
yeah. in the work that I do that has very, un, you know, the complexities of doing uh, multilateral consultancy work in family therapy, which is like a knowledge transfer. I mean, these are, it's so important to have that network. I'm sure you have it. You have it too, right? I think it's what sustains you sometimes, especially when you, if you face rejection, if you all of a sudden lose your funding for something because of circumstances completely outside your control, if you lose a job, you know, for things outside your control, who you, who do you go to? Yeah. Yeah. Those, those friendships and that network really sustain you almost like a family. Yeah. Very much so. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how about that. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, in terms of, we talked about some of the kind of things you've realized along the way, you know, what, what motivates you to stay the course to continue this type of work? I mean, it must be difficult. It must be mentally. I, I'm just guessing here. If I was dealing, doing this type of work, I think I would be mentally exhausted sometimes. Um, how do you, you know, replenish your own stores of energy? I mean, it's, it, it's changed over the years. Um, there was one period where, I mean, I, I really love to run. I don't run as much anymore because I, I had, had an injury a while back. So I'm still trying to get back up to it, but like running and one project, I like doubled my, my run time <laughs> to, which was like, you know, I wasn't running that much, but my double time was like nine miles. Like I'd watch a whole movie. If I was indoors, a whole movie we're all running. Wow. Now I know now I'm like, that was crazy, but that's what I, you know, that's what happened to me for me to like, you know, manage that particular project. I used to get massages once in a while, but during that project, I did it every week. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, you know, it was like not even to just do better. It was just to stay normal, actually. (laughs) Um, Now, uh, it doesn't have to be as intense. And I've noticed like the, if the work is intense, like the efforts to balance need to be also to match it. Like I need to match it in proportion. So uh, exercise, obviously, but I, you know, I get bored easily. So like if, and now I live on these coasts. I'm like, I can't always run uh, outdoors. I sprain my ankles. I'm like, oh, now what am I going to do? So like any other, I'm always looking for something new, like a physical activity. Mm-hmm. I also try to do something intellectual that's not in the work I'm doing because I don't know, something about it occupying my brain. So like I've been t- uh, learning Arabic for like also like five or six years. So mm-hmm. there's something about the also like the switch, turning a switch that helps. Um, some things I can't do like when when it's the work is so intense. Like I notice I have to sleep more obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I used to love to read, but now reading is not. I need to do something physical. Something it's that's more. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you're right. It's int- you know, and I I only work about. If I look back, it's about three contracts a year, which is not very many, mm-hmm. but it's ongoing. So it feels like it's the whole year. And I'm working with a group right now. And this is already, this is my eighth month on their contract. So like, I need to develop the stamina. Like I have the intellectual stamina to do it, but like figuring out the physical uh, stamina plan is important. Is yeah. important for, or else I can't do it. You know, I can't do it. You know, and I, my doctor remembers uh, that time, this, this was during uh, one of the more stressful periods. I developed a bad habit. I started smoking 
which oh. I'm, not a, <laughs> I'm not a smoker. <laughs> and, you know, uh, that only, it lasted nine months. It lasted exactly nine months. And then I just like stopped. And now I'm like, I can't even believe that I did that. But at the time it was like, it was like a, a poor coping mechanism, but um, nevertheless, you know, it's interesting to see like what, what pulls me in what direction to deal with something unexpected. And, you know, and I, that happens a lot. It happens a lot. Friendships help. So I'll text a friend, especially one of my Fletcher buddies. And that helps ground me again. I was going to say, I mean, that's also important because the work I do, it's not that it's secret, but I can't always talk about it openly. It's yeah. Uh, so I need to be able to connect in a way that someone can respect that, but also get it. Yeah. yeah. I, I hate to admit I started smoking too in Peace Corps. That was my last cigarette. Was it too, you don't still smoke, do you? No, I okay, quit. Good. I quit. I, I thank God I quit. But um, yeah, something about Peace Corps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we used to always say like, right, that Togo was the hardest. It was the hardest country, but I don't know. Um, yeah, I smoked too in Peace Corps. Yeah, yeah. So, there, you know, the coping, I mean, I'm human too, right? It's like, well, good. what's good habits and bad habits? I mean, I have to have a good relationship yeah. with my PCP, my doctor, because yeah. of the work I do. I need, you know, I often need like fitness for duty and I need his advice and guidance about this or that. So when he, and he has a good record of giving me good uh, suggestions that work. And so he, when he told me, he's like, you're, are you really smoking? Do you realize X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, oh no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So there's unhealthy coping and then there's healthy coping or healthy yeah. habits that are able to bring us yeah. out of those. Nice. So what are you looking forward to doing next? What are you wow. excited about? Gosh, well, professionally, uh, every project is new and different, and that's always wonderful. I never know when I, I don't think I'm ever sure until I see like a, an actual contract, but what I'm going to do next. But something has happened with the most recent work in that not only is it multilateral, so that was a big change. It used to be just one or two, one country, mine, and then where I went. But now it's multiple countries. And that it, it also used to be that I would go to a place and that's how things start with a face-to-face -face training. And then there's people that I support or that are su supporting others that's developed over time. But now I'm doing this thing where it's kind of, the model's kind of flipped where I'm supporting uh specialized uh, advisors, mental health advisors for a large organization who are supporting uh, what we call focal points. So like points of contact in 20 countries. Wow. Those focal points are supporting multiple staff members in multiple regions of, of each of those 20 countries. Wow. So I've been, I'm expending like extended time with these, this small group of advisors and essentially um, training them, preparing them, supervising them with the technical expertise that they can continue this in a sustainable way. Um, that, that I mean, and I conceivably, I will never meet any of the people that they're supporting. So that's interesting. It's like somehow it's flipped. And I do think that something like that is the future. Um, I mean, that's certainly what global mental health is about. Like, how can we reduce disparities in ways that are sustainable for an appropriate to country context, not just culture. Culture is important, but culture and country context. 
And in low and middle income countries, we have to be creative in how we think about doing that while also using the evidence. So the support I'm giving to this small group, you know, really hinges on these like evidence-based interventions that are teachable and implementable and that work. Now that's it, you know, that's it, you know, I went to school for 12 years to, as a, to get my family therapy degree, 12 years. So like that's the contrast to like what, you know, what that looks like on the other side of the Janice face is fascinating, you know, raises lots of interesting questions. Um, but my interest is like, well, how, you know, I just want to keep doing more of that. And I'm at the level now, I really want to support other people in my field to do more of that, mentor them, find, help them find opportunities, help them develop their experience and skill set. And that's, I'm kind of focused on that now. I mean, I do a lot of it informally, but I try to, you know, find avenues where more of that can happen. I, I always think the last contract I had, you know, like who knows when I'll get a next one. And then the next one shows up, you know, like, okay. <laughs> and it's like an email or a note on LinkedIn or something. And then we have a chat and here we are in the midst of six months later, eight months later. And that's very humbling. It's like, wow. I mean, there's something about the, it's not without purpose, but I, I don't, um, you know, things come and, that's, you know, that's kind of nice. So it doesn't feel stressful. Mm, mm. It feels nice. It feels good. But things coming means there's still conflict out there that requires your services. Yeah. I mean, the world mm. is is not changing in terms of reduction of conflict. I mean, there's Ukraine, there's so much going on right now that is, it seems yeah. like you're never going to run out of demand for, no. No, that's a, for mental health. Um, yeah. I mean, it back to to the, the thing we started with the COVID. I mean, we're all still living in that post-COVID world. So, uh, you know, the earthquake on top of COVID and the Ukrainian war on top of COVID on top of the earthquake. What I think what is different, it feels like more solid or more like, um, like it, it feels like per- with that's something purposeful is that it's clearer now at the international level how family therapy can work. It's clearer, like how it can work and how we can implement a skill set that will reduce mental health uh, disparities and improve outcomes for individuals and families. And and now there's like really clear like declarative interest in family systems expertise. And that's very exciting, but you know, I'm at like, you know, I'm not at the beginning. So for me it's a different kind of exciting. I'm like, okay, they're ready. We were at the table, but now I have to like, you know, uh, see how to bring more of my U.S. Western-based colleagues, you know. I mean, we have so many, we have so many programs in, in the United States and, you know, family therapy, uh, emerging scholars are not, are, they're not all U.S. citizens and they're not all born and raised in the U.S. It's very international. So we, we're not, we, we need to match like the demographic of the student. And the emerging scholar with the demographic of this need that's international across the globe. And we haven't done that well. We're still very, uh, it's still very traditional in my view. So I'm kind of, that kind of inspires me. I'm inspired by being frustrated, actually, Erica. (laughs) (laughs) So when I get frustrated about something, I'm like, oh, it makes me, you know, I'll go and like write a, write a book, write an article or 
you know, do something, try and do something. So that's like also like a Herman, I think Judith Herman's ideas, like action is a helpful way, you know? Yeah. Well, frustration, uh, breeds, you know, solutions. If you are willing to investigate something and be frustrated by something, then that's why the, the creative juices start flowing and the intellectual juices start flowing to solve problems. So I love that actually. One thing that I really liked that you mentioned was, and we had talked about it a bit earlier in the discussion, is that having an impact in the world is not necessarily how many people you are individually touching. But I love the the kind of model you can build around you're training certain people. Each of those people goes and trains 10 more people who trains 20 more people who impacts 50 more people. And that's how do you scale your impact? It's really through others, right? It's not always about ourselves. Yeah. I love that. I love that way you put that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and it's almost really never about me. It's maybe starts with me. There's a pinpoint where something happened, you know, on June 14th in Beirut. Lori gets frustrated about something. (laughs) <laughs> and then, and then all of a sudden, ten thousand people are getting trained. <laughs> yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. I can stage left, stage left. Go learn Arabic or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I tried to ask this question whenever I talk to a guest. What What do you want to be remembered for? Yeah, I saw that. Oh my gosh, I saw that um, that question and. Uh, one of your, and one of your other, one of your other guests. Um, that's such a hard question to answer. I don't think about it in the moment, but I, I've, I've thought of, I mean, it comes to mind after I've heard something from somebody and I like, I'm like, Oh, I like that. Or I didn't think that that mattered to me, but that matters to me. So like, for, for example, I had one person after a training, and this was a person who was a little bit more uh, senior in the training group. So also a little bit more, not quite adversarial with me in the training group, but but less receptive, you know, more seasoned, more, mm, more skeptical, perhaps, which is I kind of also find refreshing because if people are so excited about family therapy, they can't see where there might be a flaw or a challenge. And this person's off. But by, at the end of the training, he, he gave me this beautiful compliment. I had to go look it up on Google because I'd never heard of it. He said something like, you're, he said, you're like the, you're like the, the blue ocean. You're, you're, the way that you train is like the blue ocean or the blue water. And I didn't know what he meant. It was a deep compliment. I went and looked it up and then some concept around fluidity and adaptability in the training. And now this struck me because of the way he had been in the training and I didn't know him. And I, you know, I've heard other things like that languaged in other ways that that resonated the way that he put it. And when I'm engaged with somebody, whether it's a client family or it's a training group or a colleague whose work I'm supporting because they're supporting other people in, in this part of the globe, there's something about the human connection that happens. And when I'm training there's something about that, that, uh, it's natural for me. Like, I don't notice that I'm doing it. I don't notice it as an, as effortful. Like I'm focused on, on a, on a set, but, 
But I have to, you know, for, to get that skill set to happen, I have to orchestrate a role play. To orchestrate a role play, I have to have my interpreter on board with me, or sometimes two interpreters. I have to also have orchestrated and managed and and, and enriched the safety in the room between the people present, which is not a given because of the nature of the experiences that are happening where they live. And those things are also uh, natural for me. And I think it's maybe my experience working with families, like everybody's, you know, nobody agrees on anything. And, but that's how you start. It's like, okay, we can at least agree that we don't agree on anything. <laughs> you know, yeah. you start in front of you. And so something about that, I don't even know really what it is. And that's why I think it's kind of nice to be remembered by it. Like something that I'm doing resonates in a way that I still can't explain and it doesn't feel like work. So that's something I like that I'm like, okay, I can live with that. You know, I can live and die with that legacy. And, you know, maybe in 20 years, these people I'm training now who are training 20 and 20 and 20 others will be able to say, ah, what happened there was that's how we did this. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, even like today, I, I mentioned to you that role play that I watched when I was a master's student. Yeah. And see, that is a legacy that, that that professor left for me. It's just a simple role play. Oh, that's so beautiful. It's, it's, I mean, isn't that? It's, yeah. So, yeah. I'll be okay with that. <laughs> I'll be okay that with that. That is awesome. That is awesome. It's so beautiful to think 20 years from now, there's going to be somebody in one of these far flung countries that said, I remember that role play. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's going to be it's so beautiful. Simple too, I think, you know, yeah. I, can't think of, I think it's also important to be, to be nice to people. And I'd like to be like kindness. And, um, I, uh, have seen a lot of that not happening in places where people's, uh, the agenda or the, um, you know, just lots of reasons and ways that things can get, um, unpleasant, you know, mm-hmm. to put it mildly. And how much kindness matters, like in every situation, how much kindness matters, you know, uh, even when, when it's hard, like, how do I do this in a way? I mean, and it's kind of a, kind of a diplomacy, you know, diplomacy of kindness, you know, because you never know what's going to happen in a place and you don't, you never know. And you always have to act in a way that you, that, that whatever you have imprint you leave can continue. So that changes like the nature of how you behave. And it's not like I'm an unkind person or not a nice person, but I didn't used to think it was important. And I would, I would say it's important. So I would add that to the thing. Like, so like, Oh, she's nice. She's nice. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm just very, I'm trying to process what I'm feeling after this conversation. I'm feeling very, um, inspired in a way, because I think lots of people wondering, I mean, a lot of people are reassessing their careers, reassessing their situations, like we said, post COVID and everything. And for people who, who want to have an impact, I think, I really think that concept of kind of propagating your impact across, across people so that they can take it and, and propagate it as well. And remember you for that is such a key, a key fulfilling, uh, Mm -hmm. kind of concept uh, for how you can view your career. So I'm really taking that away from this conversation and just the memories 
the 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 Togo memories are so <laughs> so fun, and we didn't even talk about all the juicy we didn't stuff. Even talk about them. <laughs> bike rides and our village meetups right before it got dark. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So if any of our listeners are interested, um, you are on LinkedIn. Yes. Do you have, um, a website or anything that I can, I can link people to? I don't have a personal website, but there's a project I did with a colleague, um, at the start of the pandemic where we created a website with a number of different uh, pieces on it. It's a globalfamilysystems.com. Perfect. I will, I will put links to those in the, in the description as well. So people can reach out. I, I just want to say thank you so much, Lori. It's been an amazing discussion. Oh, I've loved talking to you. So great to be here. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thanks. <laughs>